This Sunday I will conclude, I believe, our series that we've been on on the Forgotten God, talking about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. But tonight I, I wanted to uh, take one one uh, piece of this subject and talk to you about it, and, and I want to talk specifically about the initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I want to uh, challenge your thinking a little bit and, uh, and uh, force you to look deeper in the Word of God, and I believe it's going to open our eyes to see some things that God would have us that maybe we haven't seen before. As I've been studying this, it is really... Um, really uh, uh, downloaded. God has really downloaded some things in me, and so I want to share them with you. So this will be kind of a part of our series, but kind of an unofficial part. Um, Some of this you may have heard me say, depending on which service you were in. Um, You may have heard me say a little bit of this, but I'm really looking forward to sharing uh, this with you. Let's pick up in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, Joel, if you'll just get all of Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 ready for me, I may move around in those a little bit. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. If you're there this evening, would you say amen? Amen. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Who was there? Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Let's pray this evening before we get started. Father, I thank you for your presence we felt here today. Thank you that as we open your word You're going to be so gracious to us to open our hearts, our minds, and our spirits to hear from you and to be challenged by the power of your word. Open our eyes, God, and allow us to see what you would have for us today. I thank you for it right now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And the people said, amen. Amen. Let's look through through the first chapter of Acts. And the original outpouring of the Holy Spirit happens in the first few verses of Acts chapter 2. But I want to back up to Acts chapter 1, and let's set the framework for what's going on. Verse 4, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is Jesus speaking. This is right before Jesus is ascended into the heavens. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We could preach on just these four verses for the rest of the night. I, we don't have time, but just, just think about this. The disciples have been with Jesus. They've watched him do all these miracles. They've watched him preach. They've, they've listened to him preach the message of the kingdom over and over and over and over again for three years. That's all they've done. Travel with Jesus, miracles, healing, signs, wonders, preaching, teaching, the whole deal. And still... 
He's died on the cross. They didn't see that coming. I don't know how, but they didn't see that coming. He told them, I'm going to be on a cross. They didn't see it coming. I'm going to rise again in three days. They didn't see it coming. He rises again in three days. They, they're shocked by this. He's with them on the earth for 40 days in his resurrected body. Now he's about to go to heaven, and still they're not getting it. Still. Jesus says, go and and wait on the promise of the Father, and you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is the promise of the Father, promise being capitalized. The Holy Spirit is a he. Remember, we talked about this in our series. So their first question to Jesus is not, what will the Holy Spirit look like? How will we know? What's this going to do for us? No, no, no. Here's all they want to know. Lord, at this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? They are still not getting it. They still think Jesus is talking about setting up a political kingdom to overthrow the Romans and kick them out and set up Israel like was under David. This, this is what they want. This is what they think it's all about. They're still not getting it. Watch what Jesus says. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons, but you shall receive power. Something here, and I'm not going to stay long on this right now, There are times in our lives when we don't understand the times and the seasons. Jesus uses two Greek words here, kairos and chronos. I wouldn't plan on saying this tonight, but but I believe this is for somebody. Kairos being the moments. Chronos being the seasons of time. Maybe it's a month, maybe it's a year, the, the seasons of our life. So sometimes we don't understand the seasons when we're in, that we're in, and we don't understand the moments that are happening. But Jesus says, in all of that, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So here's Jesus' solution to not understanding your time and your season. The power of the Holy Spirit. It'll get you through. It'll lead you. He'll guide you. He'll comfort you. He'll help you. He's the spirit of truth. He he, he is all that you need if you'll trust in him when you don't understand. But you'll receive power. Power to make it through. Power to overcome. Power to see miracles. Power to see things happen in your life. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit. So when we don't understand and it doesn't make sense, we turn to the Holy Spirit. Let's go back to what's happening here. They're gathered together. Jesus says, wait for the promise of the Father. This is his last words before he ascends into heaven. Verse 9 through 11, he ascends up. I'm not going to read those, but basically he ascends up uh, into a cloud that received him out of their sight. Then all of a sudden they turn around. There are two angels there, and they say, hey, you know, what are you staring at? He's going to come back in the same manner. We pick up now in verse 12 through 14. Now the disciples are doing just what Jesus said. They returned to Jerusalem. We read these verses before we, before we began our sermon today. Are you out there? Everybody okay tonight? All right. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. Okay, a Sabbath day's journey. So they're out on this mountain called Olivet, and they return back to the city of Jerusalem. Why does he say a Sabbath day's journey? Because under the, the uh, laws of Moses, you could only walk so far on a Sabbath day. 
uh, originally you weren't supposed to leave your home, but you were allowed to basically go to the temple. From wherever you lived, you could walk to the temple uh, or to the place of worship, wherever you might go to be worshiping. So uh, basically, they could walk about a mile on the Sabbath day. Okay, so he says uh, the Mount of Olivet is somewhere around a mile or less from Jerusalem. So they returned to Jerusalem. Now they're standing there, and they're in the upper room praying, having a Holy Ghost prayer meeting. Not really a Holy Ghost prayer meeting yet because the Holy Ghost hadn't been poured out, but uh, a, a, a pre-Holy Ghost prayer meeting, right? And, and uh, they're, they're, <laughs> uh, they're, so they're praying, and uh, they're fasting, but they're also getting some business done. These verses tell us who all's there and what they're doing. They're in prayer and supplication. They're all in one accord. They're in unity. They're all together. Verse 15, and in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. So how many people are in the upper room? 120 people gathered in the upper room. Peter stands up and takes charge. This is what he says. Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. I'm going to stop right there. I want you to know what, what Peter says. He's, he's referring to what Judas did and how Judas was one of them and yet he betrayed Jesus. Watch what Peter says about it. This scripture had to be fulfilled. It had to happen. So we can remain mad at Judas, guys. We can be upset. We can be angry. We can be bitter. We can be frustrated because he led these men to, to Jesus who then put, hung him on a cross. We can blame it all on Judas, all of our problems, all of our despair, all of our uh, uh, loneliness. We can blame it on J Judas. But Peter stands up in the midst of this prayer meeting. Something rises up on the inside of him. And he says, wait a second, guys. Judas had to do what he had to do to fulfill the scripture. So what does that say to us? Is it possible if Jesus had to have Judas to fulfill his destiny, that there are people in your life that are put there that have to mess you up or hurt you or betray you or come against you in some way in order for God to fulfill in you what you've asked him to fulfill. If it had to happen for Jesus, am I any better than Jesus? So I, get, I can blame all my problems on people and say, you did this and it's their fault. And if that wouldn't have happened, think about the disciples. If, if Judas hadn't betrayed us, Jesus would still be here. But Peter saw it from a different angle. Judas had to so that Judas, Jesus could go and fulfill his purpose. Okay, so now I get a different perspective on my life. The people who have hurt me, the people that have messed me up, the people who have betrayed me. Jesus Did they have to do to me what they did to me in order for you to fulfill in me what I've been begging you to do for me? Because we asked Jesus to fulfill his purpose. And what if, what if he's saying, I can't, I, I mean, I will, but it's going to bring with it some suffering. 
It's going to bring with it some pain. All throughout the New Testament, you hear the disciples talking about, the apostles writing about how that their suffering and their pain connected them with Jesus. They're suffering for the cause of Christ and how it connected them with Jesus. Maybe that's a bit of what they were talking about. Maybe they were reminded of the pain that they felt from Judas. Just a thought. Let's get back on subject. So in verse 26, now they're going to replace Judas uh, because, uh, and, and he write, he, uh, Peter quotes the book of Psalms where he said, let another take his, pl- his office or his place. So verse 26, and they cast their lots and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So there were originally 12 disciples. Judas goes down. They cast lots as, as Peter says is in the word of God. There had to be another one to replace him. That lot lands on Matthias. So Matthias is now part of the 12. Now we're back to 12. Everybody with me? How many people are in the upper room? 120. Okay. Let's go to Acts chapter 2 now. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were seated, seated, sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the, what we call the initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit right here. This is it. These four verses. Boom. It happens. First off, you need to know it is on the day of Pentecost. Now, uh, for those of you who weren't raised in, in Pentecostalism, uh, Pentecost can sometimes, or Pentecostal can sometimes be a very scary word. It represents things we don't understand, people doing things we don't understand. We don't know what they're doing. We don't know what they're saying. We don't know what's happening. It can be a scary word. Let me break it down for you so you understand what Pentecost means, right? In, in the Greek, it literally, the, the word, it's very similar to our word. It's Pentecosti, okay? Pentecosti. It's two words put together. Penta, think back to when you were in math in school, Penta means how many? Five. All right. A pentagon has how many sides? Five. Okay. So penta means five. Costi literally means to the power of ten. So you put the word Pentecost together, and it literally means, get this now, it's very scary, 50. That's it. I know that's a scary word. It literally means 50. Whew, a shudder just went down my spine right there. It literally means 50. Okay, 50 what? 50 days essentially after the Passover. Not exactly the Passover because uh, God changed the deal. And it's 50 days uh, after the first Sabbath after the Passover. That's to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus. So now it's 50 days after the Sabbath, right? That is the day of Pentecost. They all come together. And they celebrate. Now, Jesus was on earth for about 40 days. Then they, they've been praying for 10 days now. This is a serious prayer meeting. They're praying. They're, they're, they're going to the temple and praying. They're praying in the upper room. They're, they're supplication, prayer. They dealt with some business. But, man, they're here, to, they're here to do what Jesus told them to do. They may not understand this whole deal about the kingdom, but they, they can pray when Jesus said pray because they already got chewed out for that in the garden. You know, could you not tarry for one hour? So now they're going to tarry for 10 days, and they do, thankfully. Now, my belief for most of my life, and truthfully, the predominant Pentecostal belief, uh, 
and probably most everyone's belief in this room about this story is that Acts chapter 2, the first four verses, happened in the upper room. How many of you believe that? Okay. It's what I believe. It's what I thought. But upon further, further inspection of the word of God, it never says that. It doesn't say that. In Acts chapter 1, they were in the upper room. In Acts chapter 2, there's a shift here. I'm going to talk to you about it. I'm going to give you some reasons why I believe it doesn't happen in the upper room. And then the reason I want to talk to you about where it happens is because I believe the where it happens helps to reveal the why it happened. Do I have your interest now? <laughs> uh, you know, my, my belief was that as they were praying so diligently, working so hard in one accord, the Holy Spirit was poured out of them right there in that upper room. I guess this is generally where we get the idea that you have to tarry to, to wait on God if you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the old timers used to call it getting prayed through. I mean, just pray and pray and pray. When my grandfather was saved, and, and maybe some of you as well, you weren't saved until you got filled with the Holy Ghost. So you might as well make something up and start speaking something, because until then, you ain't, you're not saved. Just start speaking in some language that nobody else knows, and you'll get in. But other than that, you are not getting in. Uh, my grandpa tells the story about how he went to a, a uh, not a tent revival, a brush arbor which is they would build basically a brush um, kind of lean-to type building and have church in there for days and nights and nights. And he went every night and went to the altar, and he was doing his best to give his heart to Jesus but couldn't get filled with the Holy Spirit and therefore went home every day sad because he wasn't saved yet. And he ta- tells the story about how one night it had rained real bad, and, it was, and he was walking down the road to go to the brush harbor, and he had his new shoes on that he had just gotten from Sears and Roebuck or wherever it was back in the 40s. And he's walking down this dirt road, And the ditch is filled up with water on the side of the road. And as he's walking along, suddenly the Holy Ghost hit him and threw him in the ditch. I don't know if it's true or not, but that's the story he tells. Threw him right in the ditch. And he got up. He was so mad because he messed up his new shoes. But now he's finally saved because he was speaking in tongues. So he was good to go. It was a long time ago. so, uh, So I don't know how much of that is exactly the truth but somewhere along the way this was the predominant belief that you had to work for it you had to fight for it and then we had scripture for it. Luke chapter 24 verse 49 Luke chapter 24 verse 49 Jesus talking behold I send you the promise of my father uh, I send the promise of my father upon you but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So we got to tarry for it. we got to wait for it. And we got to work for it. And we got to do everything just right. But this really doesn't make sense when you understand that the Holy Spirit is a gift. It is a free gift that you couldn't earn if you wanted to. So it has to stop being about our works and what we do just right. And if you didn't receive it, it's because you're doing something wrong. That's totally not the case. You can't earn salvation and you can't earn the Holy Spirit. They're gifts. Consequently, we've seen people so hungry for more of God spend extensive amounts of time tarrying, seeking God, trying to figure out how to receive this free gift. This fits well into a works-based mentality that downplays the grace of God and emphasizes the responsibility of man in the process. But I wonder if we have missed some incredibly important things in this original outpouring. I wonder if we've missed some things. Have we made it just about the 120 getting filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with power? 
We've made it just about that. Those things aren't bad. I'm not downplaying them, but I wonder if we've stopped there and never looked at the whole picture. Have we missed the greater purpose of God that precipitated the event in the first take? Let's take a look at it. Let's ask this question. Where did the outpouring actually occur? In the upper room? I don't really think so. Let's take a look at some pictures of the upper, upper room. Joel, if you'll help me. This is one picture from the inside of the upper room there. Um, decent, we know it was a decent amount of space because there were 100 people, 120 people that were spending a lot of time in this room. So this is a nice room. It still stands there today. Go to the next picture. Uh, here's the kind of the next room that you can walk into. If you go up those stairs, you come into this room. Uh, it's often been believed that right here is where it happened. Let's go to the outside. Now remember, Acts uh, chapter 2 verse 41 says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Put that picture back up there for me, Joel. Watch this. Now I want you to think about this. This is... The upper room from the street that looks up at it. Okay? So, for instance, if you guys are standing in the street, you're looking up at this picture just like this. And where this wall is, that is a picture of the house. Upstairs is the upper room. Now, let me ask you this question. Does that courtyard right there look like it can hold a minimum of 3,000 people? Does and does it? This is a problem. Because they came right out of the upper room, and then Peter preaches to at least 3,000. Now, most of the time, not everybody answers the altar call. So maybe there was 4,000 there, and 3,000 of them got saved. That's pretty good odds. I'll take those. But, but let's just say for the sake of argument that every person there came to know Jesus that day and get filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What an incredible moment that would have been. But the problem is they couldn't have fit right here. Let me give you a couple more reasons. In Acts chapter 2, when you shift from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 2, Luke uses a Hebraic-styled um, narrative break to introduce translators uh, to what we now call chapter 2. Remember when, when Luke wrote this, he wrote it all as one paragraph or one story. There, there weren't chapters in it. Translators later went back and put in chapters. One of the places they looked for to put in chapters is where the writers would use certain styles to break the narrative. Luke uses one right here in Luke chapter 2. And here's what that means. That means whatever the events, the words, uh, how Luke described them in chapter, in chapter 1 have nothing to do with the events of chapter 2. He puts in a break right here to say, all that happened. Now, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. On Friday, you were all at work, and you did your job, and you went to lunch, and you went back to work, and you did your job. But, on Saturday, you were off, and you were at home. Right? So there's a transition. Now, when I say Friday to Saturday, your mind transitions and say, okay, it's a new day. Luke could have done that. He didn't, but he does use a very common style that everyone who was reading it would have known there's a transition here. So when Luke says they were in the upper room in chapter 1, he doesn't mean that they were necessarily in the upper room in chapter 2. Okay? Let's ask this next question. Or let's make this next thing. Reason that I believe that it happened somewhere else. 
The Bible teaches that all of these disciples, all of these 120, including Jesus himself, were devout Jews. Think about it. Think about the life of Jesus. What did Jesus do on the Sabbath? He went to the temple. Jesus obeyed all the laws. Jesus uh, paid the temple tax. Jesus did all the things he was supposed to do. Jesus prayed when it was time to pray. He fasted when it was time to fast. He celebrated when it was time to celebrate. He went to Jerusalem for all of the major feasts. Why? Because they were devout Jews. And, And if you had been there in Jesus' day, remember Jesus was called a rabbi. Remember Judas said, Rabbi, is it I? Well, you can't be a rabbi if you're not a devout Jew. Jesus, as a matter of fact, waited until he was 30 years old to begin his ministry out of respect for the law of Moses that said rabbis had to wait until they were 30 to begin. Why didn't Jesus begin at 20? Because in their culture, it wasn't accepted to begin at 20. It was only accepted to begin at 30. So Jesus waited till he was 30. Jesus was a devout Jew, and so were the rest of them. So this, uh, this makes us realize, helps us to realize that the disciples at this point in the story don't see Christianity as a break from Judaism. Remember, and we've even talked about this on Wednesday night, how these Christian Jews for much of the New Testament were trying to force everyone to both live under the law and live under grace. Remember the big issue over circumcision about how they were saying that you had to be circumcised. And Paul's saying, no, it's a circumcision of the heart because they are devout Jews. Do you get this with me? This is important to note. Um, uh, and uh, So that meant that we, we have to assume that after Jesus dies, because they were devout Jews, and all they see is Christ as the fulfillment of Judaism, not a break from Judaism, just the fulfillment of it, we have to assume that during uh, Jewish traditions, or, or they're continuing their Jewish traditions, during feast times and regularly scheduled prayer times, it is, it is a safe to assume that they will be doing what every good Jew was doing. All right? Luke chapter 24, verse 52. And they worshiped him. And returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually where? In the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. They were going to the temple. They weren't afraid to go to the temple. because They went to the temple because this is what good Jews did and they were being good Jews, devout Jews. All right. So this begs the question, where were they likely to be on the day of Pentecost? Luke says... The day of Pentecost had fully come. Where are they likely to be? Um, on the day of Pentecost, one of their major feasts, I want to read to you here what, what happens on this day. I can't keep all this straight at times in my head, so I'm going to read it to you. Is that okay? Here, here is what happens on the day of Pentecost. The Jewish time, this is the first hour, okay? For, this is about daylight, or, or in this time, in this part of the world, this is about 7 a.m. The chief priest prepares the altar, and the first male lamb, of, male lamb of the daily sacrifice is brought to the altar uh, in, and tied to the altar at dawn. So at, at daylight, at dawn, at 7 o'clock in the morning, this is what's happening. The second hour, 8 to 9, they wait. The third hour, this first lamb is sacrificed, and uh, the gates are open for communal, com- communal 
morning prayer service. Uh, this is the start of the third hour. Individual morning prayers are recited until about noon. So from 9 to 10 a.m., they're praying. This is the prayer time. The, the lamb is sacrificed, the gates are open, and people come in and they start praying. They pray and, and from 10 to 11, 11 to noon. They're, they're coming in, they're praying, they're, they're waiting, they leave, they go home. They come back at the sixth hour. The second lamb is brought in and tied the, uh, to the altar at noon. Uh, so at the beginning of the sixth hour, noon to one, the lamb comes in uh, and he's given a drink from a gold cup and tied to the altar. Seven, eight, at nine, the second lamb is sacrificed uh, and this is the second hour of prayer. It's also called the hour of confession and then they finish up the day. That's important to note because I want you to go with me to uh, verse 15 of chapter two. This is Peter speaking. They've already been filled with the spirit. Watch what he says. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Which hour of the day is it? What did I tell you happens during the third hour of the day? I just read it to you. They all come together and pray. The first lamb is sacrificed. They all come together and pray. Now let's think about this for a second. It is the hour of prayer. Everyone knows it. The city is filled with people who came from all over, from every nation. They have come together, devout Jews from every nation. They're devout. They live according to the scripture. They do things according to the law. They're in the city for this day. Part of this day is on the third hour to be in the temple worshiping and praying. What do you think they were doing on the third hour? Praying. So let me ask you this question. If it's the third hour, all devout Jews are here for this. This is one of their major feasts, one of their major holidays. They've all made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for this day. Where do you think the 120 were praying at? The temple. <laughs> Am I messing with you yet? <laughs> are, you, are you tracking with me? Where were they? It is most likely assume, to assume that they were not in the upper room Remember, they went to the temple daily and prayed. They're going to the temple daily and praying. They're devout Jews. Why wouldn't they all be in the temple right here? So now, we've already looked at the fact uh, that... Well, let me, let me say this one more thing to you. Um, temple, the temple mount in Jerusalem is called, in Hebrew is called the mountain of the house. In Hebrew, because here's a problem. For those of you that are looking back at the scripture and saying, well, there's a problem here, Pastor Randon. Here's a problem. In verse 2, he says, uh, as a sound of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Didn't say temple, did it? Okay, so now we have a quandary. What do we do with it? Here's the deal. In Hebrew, the term house is most often, or, or the term temple is most often translated as house. So it's the same thing. So remember, the Temple Mount is called the mountain of the house. Temple is the same word as house, essentially. So now, it's no problem. Luke doesn't see a problem here. He says they're all gathered in the house, or it all filled the house. Why? Because when he says the temple, he's referring to the house. Okay. So then we have to ask this question. Where in Jerusalem is the only place that could reasonably hold 3,000 people? It wasn't the other room. I already showed you the pictures. There's just no way 3,000 people are fitting on that little courtyard. Um, but even if we say 
okay, that courtyard could hold 3,000 people, which is no bigger than this room right here, and we ain't getting 3,000 people in this room. But even if that courtyard could hold 3,000 people, out of the 50 to 100,000 people that were gathered in Jerusalem, they all came for one purpose. Where do you think they were at that time? Walking the streets, looking for something to do? No, no. They were, everybody was at the temple. So even if the courtyard could have held 3,000 people, there was not 3,000 people walking around to be standing there. They were all at the temple. So even if you assume for a moment that the 120 were still in the upper room, there was nobody else for them to pour out and preach to. So, where is it reasonable to believe that they were? The temple. Then it starts, you, you start to look at it like this, uh, and, and you realize that the only, it's, it is only realistic to believe that the original outpour of the, of the Holy Spirit did not happen in the upper room, but happened right in the middle of the temple and the outer courts there of the temple. Because that's the only place that could hold this many people. It's the only place where they actually were. It all fits. Let me ask this question. Why wouldn't God pour out the Holy Spirit right in the middle of the temple? Luke chapter 19, verse 46. Luke 19, 46. Watch what Jesus says. It is written, my house is a house of prayer. My house is a... Whose house is it? It's God's house. Why wouldn't God pour out the Holy Spirit in his own house? Why wouldn't he? Is it making sense to you now? So now we have to ask the question... He could have been poured out anywhere at any time. Why right here? Why in the temple? Why right here in front of everyone? Why at this time when everyone was gathered around? Why not in a house or a cave or, or anywhere else? Why right here in the middle of the temple? Remember I told you, I believe the, the where helps to reveal the why. Now we're going to understand the why. I believe that God chose his temple. I believe he chose it because in a single moment he would ignite a movement around the world. You see, people were gathered from all around the world. What, is he, what does he say here in verse 5? From every nation under heaven. From all over. They're right here. They're in this moment. God has a captive audience at that moment. Why wouldn't God choose this moment to say, that's the time because it's the most opportune moment to begin a, a revolution of sorts uh, where the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is revealed to, to all of these people. And now I can start uh, my church and send them out to all the corners of the earth, to every nation under the sun. And already when, when Paul goes to preach, there are already people there to preach to because I poured out right here in the middle of the temple. What if God chose this moment for, for the purpose of maximizing his plan in the earth? What if he chose this moment to set up the church to be most effective, uh, to, be, to be quickly effective, and to reach their world just like that? What if God chose this moment to plant seeds in every nation under the sun so when the apostles and the, and the evangelists could go and preach, there was already there something to be watered and ready to spring up and bear fruit and therefore he could get this thing out? What if that's what he was doing? Pentecost and the outpouring that happened on Pentecost, I believe, was a sovereign decision by God. 
I do not believe that it just happened to be that day. I don't believe that God was sitting there taking a nap and woke up and said, oh, yeah, I forgot I was going to send them the promise of the Father. Here you go. And it just happened to happen on the day of Pentecost. No, 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 no. God doesn't do things that way. God had a purpose and a plan. I believe that it was his plan to override racial prejudice, ethnic barriers, and gender issues. He just poured it out on everyone in front of everyone. Men and women, boys and girls, the, the rich and the poor, the, the uh, people from every nation under the sun, people that looked a little like this and a little like that, people that were high class and low class. He didn't matter. I'm just going to pour it out on everybody. Everybody gets the same gift. Here it is. So he gives us his answer that the church, because he poured out his Holy Spirit, his church too should break down and be the answer to every racial prejudice, every ethnic barrier, and every gender issue right there. Boom. Every class uh, discrimination, not in the church. Why? Because God poured out his Holy Spirit to all at the same time. I believe that was a sovereign decision. What about this? What about the natural resentment that the disciples must have felt towards the people of Jerusalem who had just participated in Jesus' crucifixion? What about the fact that they were upset about because the same people they're worshiping and praying with have just crucified Jesus? What about the fact that they must have had some natural resentment? When many of them came to the faith as a result of this work of the Holy Spirit, those questions were answered. We can't be upset with these people anymore. They got the Holy Spirit poured out on them just like us. Forgiveness was for everyone, even those who had participated in Jesus' death. And every person from any country who called on the name of the Lord Jesus was saved. Wow, what a moment. When you put this thing into perspective and you, and you get the bigger picture, are you with me? Oh, wow, Jesus, uh, or God, was breaking some things. And he was saying, let's just go on and get some of this stuff dealt with right now. I'm giving the same Holy Spirit to all. I'm giving the same salvation to all. Remember last week we talked about the common salvation because it's the same for everybody. It's the same way for everyone. A couple more points and we're done. Five minutes. The location is important because it provides us a glimpse into the purpose of God for the church. God's purpose was to birth his church and ignite a global movement in one miraculous moment. They were speaking in tongues the wonderful works of God. And so God had this way. The Holy Spirit spoke in such a way that every person could understand it. As I was learning to preach, and even to this day, I work very hard to relate to my audience, to connect with you where you are. You probably wouldn't like it if I talked to you like we were in children's ministry every day. I know you wouldn't like it if I, if I preached to you like I preach at youth camp. You'd be like, come on, Pastor Andrew. All right? And, and youth don't like it when I preach to them like I'm preaching to you. So I do my best to reflect my audience. And the Holy Spirit is even better at that than I am. He, he makes this thing work so that the words that I'm saying, he, he, he makes them work out to be just what you need to hear at just the right moment. But it gives us a glimpse into the purpose for the church. You have to understand that the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome, no one, no, no apostles, no pastors. There was just a group of people in Rome doing their best to live for God and do the work of the ministry, to be the church without any leadership. 
Paul writes them, and he writes this whole incredible letter in laying out doctrine and helping them to understand some things. Why did he have to do that? Because most likely they were right here on the day of Pentecost. They get filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They receive Jesus. They go back to Rome, and they're just going back to do the work of the ministry. They're going back to do what Jesus has called them to do, and they're trying to get people saved, and they're trying to do this thing. So for 25 years, they're out there in Rome just going at it without any help, and Paul writes to them, and he is, he is so proud of them because they have stood their ground and they believe in their faith and they have done the purpose of the church even though they had no help. And it all began right here in this moment. It connected the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer to the purpose of God in the world. Let's go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. because This is one of my favorite verses in Scripture. It talks about the power of the Holy Spirit. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the, other, and to the end of the earth. Watch this. What if God said, I'm going to pour this out right in the middle of the temple where everyone is gathered, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you deal with Jerusalem right now. The power is for a purpose. What is the purpose of the church? To be witnesses. The purposes of the power is not just so you can lay on hands on yourself and be healed. The purpose of the power is not just so you can activate the nine extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit and people pump you up and think you're great and want to have you come preach for them every week. That is not the purpose. Understand this. That every expression of the power of the Holy Spirit is, an in, is intended to perform the will of God through the life of the believer for the benefit of of the mission of the church. So we don't seek power for power's sake or to make a name for ourselves. We seek the will of God to be done in and through us. We ask for his supernatural influence and grace to enable us to courageously stand for him in this generation and to be a witness in our world. The purpose of the power. Now he gives us gift and it's manifest and it is wonderful to pray for people and see them healed. That is, that is why the power is there, but it's more than that. He doesn't just do the miracles so we can feel good about ourselves. He does the miracles so that through that, it can point people to Jesus. So that through the power of the Holy Spirit, people can come to know God in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All the way over into America. When the power of the Holy Spirit is poured out, people would come to know Jesus. So this takes a total, total shift. I, I pray to God to help me. Because, and, and, I, and God helps me all the time. God gives me miracles all the time. Little ones, big ones, everything in between. He answers prayers. But every answered prayer is an opportunity for God to be glorified. And somehow through that, maybe in that moment, maybe a week later or a year later when I'm able to tell that testimony, but somehow the mission of the church is fulfilled to reach the world. So when you're asking for God to do things for you, to activate the power of the Holy Spirit that he went to heaven so that you could have, why do you want it? It's for you. For the same thing that happened on the day of Pentecost. So that thousands could be added to the church. So now I say, Holy Spirit, fill me. Work through me. That somehow, through your power, that's flowing through me, 
I might be a witness in my world. Are you okay tonight? Did I mess your mind all up really good? <laughs> Stand with me. We may stay on this subject a little while longer here on Wednesday nights. This, uh, I've been reading and studying from this book by Dr. Brassfield. We may, uh, he's just been opening so many things up in me. We may stay here a little bit longer. Would that be okay? All right. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for how good you are, for, for in your sovereignty, choosing the right place, the right time, the right moment, the right group of people to pour your Holy Spirit out on, that through them, through your sovereignty, they began to reach the world. And now 2,000 years later, we're standing here in Beaumont, Texas. And we're able to worship you because of the power of the Holy Spirit. The church has grown and has reached the world. I'm grateful for you, that Father. And I'm asking that every person in this house, every person that's here tonight, every person that's connected with Triumph would understand our purpose and the, and the purpose of the power of the Holy Spirit, that it's not just for us, but it, that it is that through us, others might come to know you, that we could be a living witness for you, that somehow we could reach our world, our families, our jobs, our friends, our, everywhere that we go, through us, through what you've done in us and through us, people's lives would be touched and changed by the message of Jesus Christ. I thank you for it, Father, for using us. You chose to use us. You didn't have to, but you did. I thank you for that. Father, give us courage to be filled with the Holy Spirit and have your power flowing through us. And when it's time to preach the word, we preach the word. When it's time to live it out, we live it out, Lord God. I thank you for that right now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.